Hello everyone, this is your host George Ukru. I'm very excited to welcome our special guest for today's episode, Iran Kims Bruner. Iran is a chief DevOps evangelist with Perfecto. He's a popular conference speaker, he's a good blogger, and he's authored four books around software engineering. Welcome to the Automation Hangout, Iran. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for having me, George. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. So we'll, uh, we would love to hear from you on a couple of uh, things today. One is around artificial intelligence, and we'd also like to uh, cover a couple of topics around uh, test automation as well. But I'll actually start off with uh, automation. And the topic that I picked is basically RPA. So we have been seeing a, a lot of uh, organizations uh, implementing RPA, and the adoption levels have actually increased uh, to a to a considerable number in the last uh, couple of years. So is there a possibility of using an RPA tool for automating testing tasks as well, or is it just limited to uh, business process automation? So uh, that, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, actually in uh, one of my uh, books, actually my third one, talking about accelerating software quality with AI machine learning, there is, uh, I'm talking a lot about RPA, but there is also a chapter that uh, my friend and colleague, Thomas Haver, wrote mm-hmm. about uh, the rise in use cases for RPA. So here we have a short time to talk, but definitely in the book, we are expanding more about RPA. To your question, RPA today isn't a trend or isn't something new. There are many vendors, I would say almost 20 vendors today mm-hmm. that supports RPA from UiPath to Automation Anywhere. What else? There is uh, Cofax and Blue Prism and uh, automation anywhere. So there are so yep. many tools that are providing you with uh, your, the ability to design your own bots uh, for uh, recording uh, process-based automation. And at the end of the day, these are things or activities that you are doing in the purpose of testing, right? Mm-hmm. Think about uh, you have a website, you have a, a banking web application, which includes so many different activities, for example, depositing checks, requesting a loan. So if you want to go through all these different permutations of you know, the website, uh, mm-hmm. you can do it manually, you can do it with Selenium and other tools. You can actually do it also with RPA tools in a form. I will just zoom on uh, the UiPath technology. Mm-hmm. So UiPath are underneath the technology are using this syntax of given when then. Right, yep. uh, the BDD, the BDD syntax, and it allows you, like you would do any functional testing, right? It yep. allows you to automate different business scenarios and do the testing in an automated fashion. So, you, to your question, the short answer is yes, you can. Okay, so I believe, like any organization, have already invested in an RPA tool like UiPath or Automation Anywhere. It might make sense for them to at least use that tool or use that tool or the investments that they have made, even even for the testing side. It's a great thought, Iran. Uh, so the other question that I had, uh, there's something that I actually face issues very often. It's basically around virtual assistants or chatbots. So there has been you can actually see chatbots or virtual assistants in almost every kind of business or domain. But what I've seen personally, as well as what I've heard from my friends, is the actual accuracy level of these chatbots or the responses what is actually provided by these chatbots are not so great. Many times you actually run into infinite loops or you don't actually get the responses to the questions that you have asked the chatbot. So what are some of the recommendations or techniques that we should actually look at in order to improve the accuracy level of bots if I am responsible for testing a bot or a virtual assistant? 
So that, that's a great question, George. And uh, I, I would start with, you know, the planning. You know, when you do testing, the success or failure in how you do testing lies within the planning phase, right? Mm-hmm. When you're doing the scoping, when you are deciding which scenarios within your chatbots are you going to automate, right? Again, the tools are not the testers. The tools enables you to do testings. And, you know, there are many vendors today that are, that are doing chatbot testing. Mm-hmm. By the way, some of them are doing it on top of Selenium, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, think about Botium. Botium yep. is a free tool. It also has a commercial flavor, but the free tool allows you, and by the way, there's also Amazon. Uh, the, uh, in Amazon, you have AWS services that allows yep. you train a full end-to-end chatbot, design it and test it. But uh, let's just go back to this botium thing, right? You can design the request and the responses uh, of a full conversation with a web-based chatbot. And the testing is wrapped within a Selenium web driver technology, okay? But to your point, yeah, if you are not expecting the unexpected, right? The testing will fail, and I don't think that it's related specifically to chatbots. It is testing, and testing is testing is testing, yep. meaning you need – chatbots has an infinite – it can have an infinite type of inputs and outputs, but at the end of the day, the real time, the way the developers implemented the bot has a finite end of what it can handle, yep. okay? Up to your point, it gets into kind of a weird – a response yep. or a, a very useless loop that yep. uh, frustrates the end user. So just to summarize, you can go around that, but it requires proper planning because, again, the tools are not the ones that are doing the testing and you need to think about the end users and be a bit more creative in the yep. way that you provide the inputs to your chatbots during the testing. Negative, not just go to the EpiPath, yep. provide illegal inputs provide unrelated inputs because sometimes you might get these kind of things and keep in mind there is a, uh, a chance you will, you will not be able to cover all these things yep. and that's where some manual and exploratory testing can complement this type of testing yeah that's a great thought Piran. and i also agree that a tool like botium can actually help us to automate the testing to a great extent especially with things like utterance generation which is very important to test input fields with various types of what you call data combinations for example i can actually ask what's your name in multiple ways it's very important to do that kind of test so that your normal user also gets the required responses based on what he is actually typing in it's a very interesting thought i think i think a tester or the the testing community should also be a bit innovative and creative when it comes to virtual assistant testing because the positive mindset may not always help when it comes to a bot uh, testing. Very great, uh, what do you call it, input. And, and uh, maybe, just, maybe just one more comment, George. Uh, think about, especially with bots and testing chatbots, think about test data, okay? Because test data kind of controls all the inputs that you would give to the test from positive scenarios to negative scenarios to illegal to infinite numbers whatever inputs that your application or the chatbot supports, you need to multiply it and scale it so you minimize the risks of infinite loops and weird coincidences 
that your end users that are listening or using the chatbots will encounter? Yeah, that's true, Dan. The other question that I have is on artificial intelligence. You've covered a number of use cases in your book, uh, Accelerating Software Quality. And one of the common questions that I actually get from testers is basically like, uh, is AI or robots uh, going to actually replace uh, human testers? So is that a reality or is that something that we can expect to happen in maybe the next 10 years or so? 100% no. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm also concluding my book and many chapters within the book with this claim. Like test automation, you know, people weren't automating 30 years ago the yep. things that they are automating today, right? There weren't yep. all these Cypress and Playwright and uh, UiPath and uh, Botium that didn't exist many true. years ago. And they exist today. And who is using these tools? Us, the testers, the practitioners. And this is the great evidence or proof that as technology evolves, we are just embracing it and making ourselves better practitioners. The tools are not doing the testing again. The practitioners, we are the ones doing the testing. At the end of the day, the end user who is going to experience an outage or a defect in production is not going to blame Botium or Cypress or any other tool. It's going to blame the product who is being released, which means it's the people who released the software. So to your question, no, AI machine learning is here to help us become better testers, better practitioners. And by the way, the book is not just about testing. It's AI machine learning yep. throughout the entire DevOps pipeline from observability and AI ops in the yep. shift right area through code analysis and code generation, including unit testing, that's the testing piece, and many other use cases. But these tools are just more advanced to help us become better practitioners, solve complex cases or complex challenges, which we couldn't solve up until AI and machine learning, you know, came to to help. So again, it's just another transformation in the evolution of technology that we as practitioners should embrace and use to become better. Yep, it's a great, great input, right? Maybe you touched upon a topic uh, which might not be very, uh, people who are especially working in the testing scene may not be very familiar with AI ops. So can you actually spend a few minutes explaining what is AI ops and uh, how does it help? Definitely. So if you split AI and ops, you know, it's artificial intelligence that helps the operation people. And by the way, there can be multiple cases or scenarios in production, pre- and post-production that AI can help you from predicting what's going to happen or where it's going to be pitfalls and outages in production. In the other way, when there are things happening in production, helping the support guys easily scan, filter, and analyze issues from a root cause analysis perspective so they can quickly filter and assign issues coming from production tickets, right, outages to the right people, identify the right code errors or issues that cause the issues that uh, people are complaining. Think about observability. Companies like Logs.io. Logs.io is part of an AI ops transformation tool or technology, and it allows you to think about massive production applications, right? They produce tons of logs tons of data, and you want to really find the needle in the haystack. You want to eliminate all the useless lines of logs. Sometimes it can be millions of lines of logs, right? That's, by the way, the scale, right? From these millions of lines of logs, you want to understand what is the right lines that can help me identify the issues, okay? So Mm -hmm. AIOps at the end of the day is a 
superset. It's a bucket of things that are happening pre-post-production, in production, of course, and it allows the guys that are monitoring applications live to do better decision-making, to solve issues much faster. Think about MTTR, SLAs, mm -hmm. all these things are much better or can be dependent on an AI ops engine or tool. You know, I, I heard about New Relic and uh, these kind of yep. tools. I mentioned Logs.io. All of these tools have an AI component within their product that allows to really simplify and optimize all these long processes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very interesting uh, use case, Iran, and thanks for spending time in explaining that in detail. The other area where I've seen a lot of challenges in the development as well as testing of algorithms, where you need a good amount of data in order to train as well as test a model. And very often what I've seen is like the developers or testers won't get sufficient data to actually train or even develop or even test the model. So how are organizations trying to get around this problem of lack of data for testing algorithms? So, and by the way, when you connect, you know, these algorithms to AI, AI can uh, be, as I mentioned earlier, a very good friend and a tool that simplifies. And as my book was titled, accelerate your software del delivery with quality, and, but at the same time, without proper data and proper validation of your algorithms, there can be a lot of bias, mistakes, a lot of damage can be actually caused to the brands when they are relying on poorly designed algorithms or algorithms that weren't properly validated. So when you are depending on AI with, you know, driven algorithms, sometimes by the way, you are dependent on third party, you know, open source engines that are creating and generating some of this data because there are a lot of reuse in AI because there are some common use cases that many organizations are jumping on and it can save them a lot of time by just leveraging existing data, existing open source libraries. So when you are benefiting from an open source or even when you are designing it yourself, think about, you know, A, the proper amount of coverage and B, the proper validation, you know, put some criterias to this engine, to this algorithm that you can validate because guesswork doesn't work with AI, okay? So you cannot rely on algorithms that actually is supposed to make you smarter without validating these algorithms. So I don't have a good shortcut for you other than test the algorithms, challenge them, validate them, understand the origin of the data because data becomes old after a while, yep. you know? But think about it. you you build your system on data, but 16 months, 18 months later, this data is already obsolete. Things yep. change in your product and in the marketplace. So these algorithms need to continuously be uh, challenged and validated, even if they work perfectly well when you, you work with them or when you design them. So continuous testing, in my mind, for these algorithms, depending on AI, is my recommended practice. Okay, that's a very interesting uh, thought, uh, Iran. And one additional question around uh, the same topic of AI and algorithms. Like, what are the accuracy levels that you've seen with these algorithms or solutions that are developed with uh, AI capability? Is it like 100% reliable or is it like somewhere close to 100%? So what is that you've seen from your experience? So my experience actually shows that it varies, okay? There is uh, There are good algorithms, there are bad algorithms, and as I mentioned, things change over time. And there is actually a grade or a rating that you give to the accuracy of these algorithms. So I think that there is an acceptance criteria of 80% and above of 
this algorithm, you know, when you run this or you when you exercise your AI engine with the underlying algorithms and you get 80 to 90% success rate, that's a good sign. That That's a reliable algorithm that you can count on and use. Below that, it means that you are starting to deal with some flakiness, some maybe guesswork, if you like, and you're and you are relying on something which isn't uh, that accurate. I will try to remind to to remember the name of this rating because there is a given rating for AI algorithms from an accuracy perspective. There are different models, okay, that you can use to treat or to test your algorithms. And again, the success rate should be, in my mind, the upper eighty percent towards the ninety means that your algorithm is. A successful one. Are you talking about uh, the confusion metrics accuracy Iran here? Like, uh, uh, okay, that that's a very good metric. Yep, I've used that for a couple of uh, use cases. That's a very good uh, way of actually finding out the accuracy levels. And I'm that's... talking much more about that and you know how to test your algorithms and validate them in in the book itself. And that's definitely one of the suggested uh, metrics that I know of. Know yes, that's of. how that's how I learned about it, Iran. Like when I was actually reading your book, I, I remember seeing it, and when I got an opportunity to test the algorithm. I actually went back and read it, and then I actually understood how is that I should be actually validating the accuracy levels. It was very useful for me. The other challenge that I've seen, mostly in the software testing world, both on the manual testing side or on the automation side, is around regression testing. So you have a bunch of automation test curves or maybe manual test cases that you have to execute in a very limited time. And you don't have any clue on what the development team has actually changed inside the code. So how is that you can actually use something like AI to identify the code impact based on the changes or enhancement that is actually going into production? So uh, that, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, testing is something that ages, ages over time, right? Regression tests that you're going to run this week, next week, in two months, if it's the exact same suite, that's a bad practice. Because to your point, the product team, engineering team are doing sometimes dozens of pull requests each day. They are changing the product. They are changing sometimes the flow of the application. So just uh, blindly running the, the same regression suite obviously makes no sense. Then, on the other hand, right, doing code analysis or test impact analysis on the code level, you know, that's a, a nice uh, practice in reality or uh, on the paper. But when you're dealing with software testers, not really often they have the access to the code of the application and think about complex applications which are built on microservices with distributed teams. There is almost no way like a test engineer would figure out from all this distributed architecture which changes impacted which areas so we can run the test. So that's why, you know, I think that's an open challenge today. And if you put on top of this challenge, you know, the testing inside the sprint, right? Because these guys, the developers that are doing changes within a sprint, they are doing changes. Sometimes they are implementing a new piece of code. So regression makes no sense on this code. You need new yeah, test cases. You need to automate or build even manually, right? You need to do new test cases. So it's always this balance between exploratory, manual new cases, automated cases with, yes, you can do code coverage analysis. There are tools like C-Lite and there are tools like Launchable. 
which really drinks from the hose, right? They, they drink from the CI and they see which pull requests trigger which test cases. And based on that, they give you some recommendations, maybe not just which tests to run, but maybe which areas of the code were not exercised, giving you a clue, okay, I need to focus more on testing this particular area. So I know that it's a long answer, but this is still in my mind an unsolved challenge. It can only be solved, by the way, with strong collaboration between the test and the developers with true and full transparency, you know, the tester needs to know, okay, these guys, these developers did this X pull request, they touch these functional areas, whatever tests you have, build them into a regression suite that would run from Jenkins. Oh, by the way, we also added six, seven, eight areas which you do not have tests for, maybe focus on them in this sprint, do some manual and create new automated scenarios to complement what you had in the previous sprint. So it's a, it's a working, you know, and it's a continuous challenge that needs to be a part of any process within yep. your software development lifecycle. Yep. Thank, thank you for explaining that uh, in detail, Iran. I have one additional question around the AI use cases that you covered. So most of the use cases that we have seen or that we discussed today are applicable test engineers or in some cases AI also is actually applicable for folks who are actually doing SRE or uh, support. So what about developers? Like what are some of the use cases uh, that you have seen from your experience around maybe like things like unit testing as well as reviews that likely help developers to do things faster? So I've seen few things. I've seen for developers, I've seen automated code reviews mm-hmm. with AI and machine learning. So actually throwing the code that you've just finished as a developer to a machine learning or AI engine mm-hmm. to scan the code and based on its own database to trigger some either syntax, security, performance, unused code within the runtime. So code analysis Mm-hmm. You know, code analysis is a huge superset, right? But the code analysis goes to syntax, performance, security, unused code, memory, memory leaks. Uh, this is uh, one use case that I've seen used by developers. A second one is low code, no code, the ability mm-hmm. to provide use case or uh, functionality and get code generated, at least in a wrapper, some kind of a thing that the developers can then obtain and expand. So code generation mm-hmm. is also something that I've seen, maybe less mature compared to other use cases, but it's still an option. Another use case that I've seen is by a company called Diff Blue. Mm-hmm. Diff Blue allows you to do, as a developer, your own unit test in Java. Yep. So you have written a, a bunch of uh, lines of code, Diff Blue engine, scans and generates for you as a developer the the proper unit testing uh, to validate your code blocks. So that's another dev use case. Lastly, of course, there are endless things, right? I mentioned earlier, maybe it's called AI ops, but observability and logs and debugging, maybe it's in the right hand, but Mm -hmm. it's still feeding the developers. You know, at the end of the day, when you have a support, ticket and issue in production, while AIOps does a lot of the analysis and assessment, it all being chewed and made ready for the developers to consume. So there are two actually buyers, if you like, for this use case, for the AIOps, the support and production monitoring guys, 
but also then the developers. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are just a few more examples. That, that's a very good set. In fact, I've used Diplu to a good extent with Java, and I was very impressed with the accuracy of the way it was actually generating unit tests. And the basic problem that you've seen in the software testing industry is developers don't get enough time to write unit test cases, and that problem can be solved. And wherever I've seen this working, I've seen a great improvement in the quality level because the developers themselves would actually find a good amount of feedback, and then the remaining ones only needs to be passed on to the uh, the QE or the the test dates for actually working in a program or a product. So Definitely. final final area that I want to touch Iran is uh, on your book. So congratulations on the release of your new book. I know this is the fourth one. Uh, it's called A Front-end Web Developer Guide to Testing. So what are some of the use cases and topics that you're covering as part of this book? I just got a copy just in the first chapter, but it will be very useful for, for our audience also to know what this book is all about. So thank you for mentioning it. And obviously for buying it, I hope you will like it. This book, what I've seen over the past 12 to 18 months is a complete transformation in the cross-browser testing domain. Mm -hmm. Okay, You were talk to me two years ago, Selenium was the undefeated yep. king of uh, cross-browser web application testing, by the way, used by front-end developers and test automation engineers. Yep. Where we are today, as I'm speaking with you, we are in a whole new uh, landscape where you see tools such as Playwright, Cypress, Google Puppeteer, which, by the way, comes not just with code-related stuff. We talked earlier about AI. This is not AI, but it's a code generator generation engine that is baked into the tools. Cypress comes with its own Cypress Studio. Playwright mm -hmm. comes with its code, code generator. Puppeteer and DevTools have their own Chrome recorder. Mm -hmm. So what I've seen, I've seen this transformation, and I thought this is a great opportunity to really educate the entire landscape because there are so many mature frameworks that can allow you to do better testing of web applications. And by the way, they're emerging with the emergence of technologies. Today, we are no longer talking about web. Uh, we're talking about progressive web. We're talking yeah. about Flutter application, React. These advanced applications require sometimes thinking outside of the box. Things about, uh, like mocking services, API testing within these frameworks, mm -hmm. visual testing, performance testing, accessibility testing, code with low-code capabilities. The landscape is so advanced, yep. and I thought, okay, let's aggregate all this information across these at least top four frameworks that I mentioned, Cypress, Playwright, Selenium, and Google Puppeteer, and give the guide not just to the testers, but to the front-end web application developers so they can, again, not say we have no tools, we have no time. Mm -hmm. These tools are complementing each other. Sometimes they are just JavaScript. In many cases, it's JavaScript, Python, Java, C Sharp, and other languages. So this book gives kind of uh, closes all the excuses for both developers and testers that they don't have enough tools. These four frameworks, is everything that you need as of today. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not one versus the other in my mind. One or two can actually complement each other to a very good, robust code coverage scenarios or suite. And this is this was a trigger. Give this guy to the community so they mm -hmm. can do better testing of the web application throughout the entire testing types, not just functional. We talked about regression earlier. So mm -hmm. functional, non-functional, accessibility, APIs, mocking and network control, and many other things. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was basically the trigger. 
That, that's a very good uh, topic. Uh, uh, I think you, you have actually nailed it down. So that uh, I've seen a lot of organization moving towards frameworks like Playwright and Cypress. And I know that you're an ambassador of Cypress uh, as well. So Iran, like for folks who want to learn a tool or a framework like Cypress, what is the background they should have? Or what are the prerequisites, that skills that they need to have? And how much time does it take uh, for a person to master the uh, framework like Cypress? Great questions. And I think you started with the right question, right? Where do they start? As I mentioned, you have so many choices, but at the end of the day, you as an individual, you have your own skill set, you have your own preference. And by the way, sometimes your own skill and preference does not meet or match the project. And think about it, right? You are a very strong JavaScript developer, okay? Uh, maybe let's not take JavaScript, let's take Python. You are a strong Python developer and your team is going to use, or you want to choose Cypress. Cypress does not support Python. So you need to A, decide, okay, I'm going to write scripts or test automation in this given language. It's all about writing code. Test code is like any other coding throughout yep. the entire product lifecycle. So A, decide what's your strong sweet spot with regards to a development language. If it's JavaScript, almost any framework would fit. Then go and you know you said you use the word master okay mm -hmm. so as you mentioned i'm a cypress of ambassador uh, sorry i'm an ambassador of cypress but there are so many universities and online tutorials yep. with code samples and github repositories and sometimes you know you're you actually tasked to do bdd on top mm -hmm. of this framework selenium and cypress and other frameworks work with bdd so the scope of what you are going to learn and become a master also needs to be connected to the reality, to the project, to the yep. timeline that you have. But start with the education that is out there. And most of the education is free. Cypress.io, the CypressGitter.im website. Playwright has a Slack channel and have their own Playwright.dev website. Mm -hmm. Google Puppeteer, Google are great about documenting everything. And the best way to learn is hands-on, right? I wasn't born master of any of these frameworks. I cannot say that I'm a master today. I'm a good good practitioner, but I installed each and every framework. As I was writing the, the previous book, you know, I have on my local machine Playwright mm -hmm. and Puppeteer and Selenium plus Selenium Grid, Selenium 4. I have Cypress and I've installed and I use some GitHub repositories. I expanded my repositories with my own projects and website. So it's a mix of do it yourself and learn mm -hmm. from the communities and maybe sometimes also in the future co contribute back to the communities. Yep. yep. That's thank, thank you so much uh, for uh, for getting into the details, Iran. We have run short of time. Thank you so much, Iran, for joining us and sharing some wonderful insights about AI as well as automation. I also uh, would like to thank you for giving us uh, a preview of your book, A Front-end Web Developer's Guide to Testing. I will actually I would actually love to complete the reading maybe in the next couple of weeks. I know that there are a lot of interesting topics that will be helpful for our audience as well. So thank you so much uh, once again, Iran, and have a wonderful day. Thank you again, George, uh, you and your entire audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. With this, we have come to the end of this episode of Automation Hangout. Hope you found the session interesting as well as useful. Please do subscribe to our channel to stay abreast with the ever-changing world of automation. Until we meet again, goodbye.